Section 13 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4, Italy and Her Invaders, by Stanley Leaths, Part 2. Nothing now remained to delay Charles's advance to Florence. Into Lucca, the king made a triumphant entry. At Pisa, he was received with acclamations, and in a hasty speech, was understood to have restored its liberty to the city, where he left a small garrison. Finally, on the 17th of November, the king entered Florence with 8,000 horse and 4,000 infantry in a martial array such as never had been seen before. The whole city received him with eager hopes and fervent affection. Before he had left, however, some change of feeling had set in. The behavior of the French soldiers was not all that could be desired. Wages were in arrear, and they could not, if they wished, pay for all they needed. But to women it is admitted that they did no wrong, and indeed, the conduct of the French towards non-combatants throughout these wars compares favorably with that of Italians, Spaniards, Germans, or Swiss. But there were other grievances. Charles had put off all negotiations until after his entry. The deliberations that followed were not always peaceful. The king was suspected, and not wholly without cause, of wishing to restore Piero, his financial demands were considered excessive, and even after abatement still remained large. He insisted on retaining Pisa and Livorno, Sarzana and Pietra Santa till the end of the campaign. But the freedom of Pisa was not among the stipulations. A French envoy was to be present at all deliberations of the Signoria. In the discussions which ensued, bold words were used, the Florentine Caponi threatened to call the citizens to arms. But the king was the stronger, and finally his principal demands were accepted. The whole French army was now moving on Rome. Aubigny brought his men across the Apennines into Tuscany. Montpensier had gone on with the troops from Genoa. The heavy artillery had been disembarked at Spezia and was following the king. A small force with Giuliano della Rovere joined the Colonna who were holding Ostia. The position of the Pope was critical. Rumor ran that he had not hesitated to call in the Turk in defense of Rome and Naples. It was certain that he was the pensioner of Bayezid and the jailer of his brother Jem. The simony by which he had gained the triple crown and the scandals of his private life were well known and even exaggerated by report. His bitterest enemies were with the French. Could he resist? Should he fly? Should he await the king and come to terms? For a time he meditated resistance. The Duke of Calabria, Ferrantino, afterwards king, led his army into Rome. Alexander arrested the cardinals Ascanio and Colonna. Then wiser counsels prevailed. The city was not defensible. Ferrantino was dismissed, the cardinals released, 
and on the last day of the old year, Charles VIII entered Rome with the consent of the Pope. Even in the strong places of the Orsini, who served the King of Naples, he had found no resistance. Reluctantly, sullenly, Alexander came to terms. The king was to have the custody of Jem, who might be used in the proposed crusade to stir up rebellion against Bayezid. The cardinal of Valencia, Cesare Borgia, was to accompany Charles, nominally as legate, really as a hostage. The pope promised no investiture. Indeed, he had every reason to be satisfied with the moderation, perhaps with the simplicity, of his visitor. The hostile cardinals were bitterly disappointed. On the 28th of January, 1495, the king left Rome. Meanwhile, his lieutenants, advancing in the Abruzzi, had occupied Aquila. The Neapolitans, retreating, had laid waste the country before him. But Alfonso, conscious of his own popularity and tortured, it is said, by remorse, had lost all courage. On the 21st of January, he resigned in favor of his son, Ferrantino, an amiable youth, free from all complicity in the crimes of his father and grandfather. At Velletri, the King of France received his first warning. Envoys from Spain reproached him with the injuries done to the Holy Father, whereby they declared the Treaty of Barcelona had been violated, and summoned him to desist from his enterprise and to accept the mediation of the Catholic King. The same day, the Cardinal of Valencia escaped from the French camp. The best answer to such indications of ill-feeling was success. Ferdinand lay at San Germano, defending the line of the Liris. At Monte San Giovanni, the strong fortress ventured to defy the French. In a few hours, the place was taken by assault and sacked. The advanced guard of the French, crossing the Liris, then threatened the enemy's flank and rear. Ferrantino retreated to Capua. Gaeta surrendered, and during the absence of the king at Naples, Gian Giacomo Trivulzio made overtures to give up Capua, which were accepted. At Nola, the Orsini captains, Pitigliano and Virginio Orsini, were captured. At Aversa and Poggio Reale, embassies from Naples saluted Charles, offering submission. On the 22nd of February, Charles entered Naples. Ferrantino, who had destroyed the chief part of his fleet, still held the detached Castel del Uovo with five ships and retired on the following day to Ischia, leaving garrisons in the fortresses. The last of these surrendered under the French fire on the 22nd of March. Charles was thus master of the capital, and the more distant provinces showed willingness to accept his rule. He showed a praiseworthy desire to win the goodwill of his new subjects, remitting taxes, as he says, to the amount of more than 200,000 ducats. A general amnesty to those who had served the Aragon kings, restoration of property to the Angevin exiles, even the recognition of slavery as then existing, proved his desire to respect all rights. But impatient of business, given up to pleasure, 
indolently desirous to satisfy all petitioners, he not only squandered the royal domain, but created almost as many grievances as he bestowed favors. No serious attempt was made to settle the government on a firm basis. The project of a crusade had received a grave blow in the death of Jem, which took place at Naples. The Archbishop of Durazzo undertook to organize a rising in Albania, but the project was frustrated by his accidental arrest at Venice. Charles's own position was too doubtful to allow any more determined effort. Since his refusal to confer Sarzana and Pietra Santa upon Ludovico, the latter had been intriguing against his ally. Ferdinand of Aragon had sent to Sicily the great captain Gonzalo de Cordova with a fleet, ostensibly for defensive purposes. Venice was arming, as she said, against the Turk. Maximilian was afraid that the successes of Charles in Italy might lead him to claim the imperial crown. Negotiations took place at Venice, resulting in a league between the Pope, the Roman king, Ferdinand and Isabella, Venice and Milan, for the protection of the Confederates against the aggression of other powers, then possessing states in Italy. The league purported to be defensive, but was in reality offensive. Florence alone, still friendly to France and relying on her good offices to recover Pisa, was not a party to it. The transaction was communicated to Comines, French ambassador to Venice, on the 1st of April. Charles was soon informed of the danger rising in his rear, but did not leave Naples till the 21st of May. Fortunately for the invader, Louis of Orléans was still at Asti with a handful of troops. In a few days he had collected 2,000 men. The Duke of Bourbon, the wise vice-regent of the king in France, was pressed to send aid, for the troops of Milan threatened an attack if the place was not surrendered. But Ludovico, timid as usual, allowed the moment to pass. Reinforcements soon put Asti in a position for defense, and secured for the king his line of retreat. Meanwhile, Ludovico was celebrating the investiture of Milan, which he had at length permission to proclaim. In June, Louis was in a position to occupy the city of Novara by the invitation of the citizens. Shortly after, the citadel surrendered. Ludovico was paralyzed. It is thought that if the Duke of Orléans had marched on Milan, he would have met no serious resistance. Meanwhile, the king had left Naples with some 1,200 French lances, 4,000 Swiss, and 2,000 Gascon arblasters. The other half of his army, partly Italians, was left with Montpensier, the viceroy, to deal with Ferrantino, who had recently landed in Calabria with Spanish aid. On reaching Rome, the king found the pope had fled to Orvieto. Florence, Charles avoided, since the Florentines claimed, and he was determined to refuse, the surrender of the fortresses, especially of Pisa. At Pisa, he found himself equally unable to satisfy the Pisans. At Spezia, against all sound advice, he detached 500 horse and 2,000 foot 
to operate against Genoa with the aid of the fleet and the Genoese exiles. But he had the forethought to send on a force to occupy Pontremoli, which capitulated. The Swiss, violating the terms of the surrender, sacked and burned the place, destroying valuable stores. The possession of Pontremoli gave the French access to the pass. Beyond the summit lay the army of the League. The chief part of the army, about 40,000 strong, was in Venetian pay and commanded by the Marquis of Mantua. Beside men-at-arms, there were some thousands of Stradiotti, the ferocious light cavalry of Albania. The chief part of the forces of Milan was engaged in the siege of Novara, but a Milanese contingent was present. Over the steep pass, the Swiss, in sign of penitence for their late excesses, dragged by hand the heavy cannon, each ordinarily drawn by thirty-five horses, and French nobles, notably La Tremouille, did not disdain to work beside them. At Fornovo, the French vanguard came into touch with the Stradio advanced posts and halted. The rest of the army coming up encamped for the night in great lack of provisions. Negotiations were opened for a free passage, but came to nothing. The next day the French advanced. At Fornovo, the valley of the Taro is of moderate width. On the right bank were posted the Allies, and there was their fortified camp. The French resolved to cross the river and to force their way along the left bank. The river had been much swollen by a thunderstorm during the night, and rain was still falling. Thus the French army, having once successfully effected its crossing, which it did undisturbed, was partly protected. The vanguard was expected to bear the main weight of the attack, and included the bulk of the artillery with 3,000 Swiss and a strong body of men-at-arms. This body, moving on too fast, became separated from the rest of the army, and had only to sustain a trifling charge of the Milanese horse under the Count of Cagliazzo. Little use was made on either side of the artillery. The main attack was made by the Marquis of Mantua. Though it was originally directed on the center, the necessity to deviate for a ford made it really an attack on the rear, under Louis de la Tremouet. The king's main battle then wheeled round and took up a position to the left of the rear guard, facing to the rear. Fortunately, the baggage, which was moving along the hills and away from the river, attracted the Stradiots and diverted them from serious work. The Italian horse, who charged the king's rear and center, were outflanked and soon put to flight, and were pursued to the ford from which they came. More than half the army of the Allies never came into action, but the whole of it was thrown into confusion, and many fled. The rout was partly stopped by the king's prisoners Pitigliano and Virginio Orsini, who escaped during the battle. But another attack was out of the question, and the French even thought of assuming the offensive. Perhaps a well-timed charge by the Marshal de Gier with the vanguard might have turned the defeat into a rout, but the French had every reason to be satisfied. They were able, after arrest, to march off during the night, 
and reached Asti on the 15th of July practically unmolested. The Venetians claimed the victory, but the fruits of victory were with the French. At Asti, the king found things in forlorn case. The expedition against Genoa had failed. The French fleet was captured in Rapallo by a superior Genoese force, and all the plunder of Naples was lost. The Duke of Orléans was besieged at Novara, and his garrison were at the last pinch. Besse was sent in haste to raise a fresh force of Swiss, but by the time they arrived 20,000 strong, Novara had capitulated on easy terms, and Ludovico showed himself inclined for peace. Louis of Orléans was anxious to use the Swiss against Milan, but Charles, perhaps disgusted with the shifting fortune of war, concluded at Vercelli a separate peace with Ludovico, and on the 15th of October he crossed the Alps. Milan was left in statu quo, except that the Castelletto of Genoa was left for two years as a pledge of good faith to France in the hands of the Duke of Ferrara. Venice had profited by the trouble of Naples to acquire four ports, Monopoli, Trani, Brindisi, and Otranto on the easterly coast of Apulia. Florence was by agreement to receive back her towns, but the corrupt disobedience of French lieutenants gave Pisa to the Pisans, Sarzana to the Genoese, and Pietrasanta to Luca. In Naples, the first descent of Gonzalo had not been fortunate. His army was defeated at Seminara by a band of Swiss. But Ferrantino, nothing daunted, presented himself at Naples with his fleet. Repulsed at first, a chance gave him the advantage, and his supporters gained the town. Montpensier, Eve d'Alegre, and Etienne de Vesque were shut up in the Castel Nuovo. The provinces, north and south, rose against the French. The Colonna left them. Aubigny, with difficulty, held out against Gonzalo in Calabria. Montpensier, in despair, concluded a conditional capitulation, and when Pressy failed to relieve him, abandoned the city of Naples. In February 1496, all the castles of Naples were in the hands of the Aragonese, the French still held Ariano, Gaeta, and a few other posts. In July, Presse and Montpensier surrendered to Gonzalo and Ferrantino at Atella. The chief part of the French prisoners, including Montpensier, succumbed to the climate and to disease. Aubigny gave up the struggle in Calabria. On the death of Ferrantino, October 6, 1496, Federigo, his uncle, succeeded. Soon after, November 19, Gaeta, the last important stronghold of the French, surrendered. The King of France still meditated another expedition and concluded, towards the end of 1497, an alliance with Aragon for a joint conquest. Five months later, an accident cut short his life. The only son of his marriage with Anne of Brittany had died in infancy. His successor, Louis of Orléans, inherited his plans of conquest, but with a difference. 
the fear of a new French invasion, increased by the league concluded with France in 1496 by the majority of the Swiss cantons, worked upon Italian nerves. The restless Ludovico first took the alarm and approached the Venetian Signoria. It was agreed to call in the king of the Romans, who responded to the call. Maximilian agreed, like a mere condottiere, to take the pay of the League, which was composed, as in 1495, with the addition of Henry VII of England. In July 1496, a conference was held at Mal in the Tyrol near the frontier. The members of the League gave diplomatic support, but none were ready to give material help except Milan and Venice, and even these doled out their pittance with a cherry hand. Maximilian had a name to sell, but few men and less money to back it. The imperial estates and the much-discussed imperial subsidy afforded no help. However, some Swiss were enrolled, and Maximilian raised a few horsemen from his own subjects and personal adherents. By the end of September, a small army had collected around the Roman king at Vigevano in the Milanese. The League, such as it was, still lacked a plan. The Duke of Milan was anxious to secure the northwestern frontier. Gian Giacomo Trivulzio was at Asti with 700 French lances threatening Milan. Savoy, under its new Duke, Philippe de Bresse, was intimately linked with France. Montferrat was governed in the same interest. The Marquis of Saluzzo was a French vassal. To conquer Asti, to coerce the other northwestern powers, great and small, and so to secure the Alpine passes, was an intelligible plan, though it carried risks and difficulties. But Venice, by this time reassured against the fear of an immediate invasion, was unwilling so far to strengthen her neighbor and ally. Her real wish was that Maximilian should retire. Failing that, there was one enterprise that Venice could, tolerantly though not cordially, support. Florence alone of the Italian powers was still friendly to France. Florence was at war with Pisa, where Venice had troops, and on which she had designs. Against Florence the blow must be directed, aided by Venetian galleys and Genoese ships. Maximilian readily fell into this plan, which he further enriched with fantastic additions, scheming to capture the vessels returning from Naples with the French prisoners, to invade Provence and join hands with a Spanish force from Roussillon and with Germans from the Rhine. Meanwhile, a part of Maximilian's army and a Venetian contingent were needed to protect the Northwest. Delays were many, but at length the Allied force moved from Genoa, partly by land, partly by sea. It was now October, and the autumnal gales imperiled and impeded the naval force. The land forces suffered equally from heavy rains. At length, Maximilian reached Pisa. The united army reached the total of about 2,500 horse and 4,000 foot. With this inadequate power, ill-provided with heavy artillery, Maximilian, himself literally penniless, 
determined to undertake the siege of Livorno, the last outlet of Florence to the sea. The Venetian and Genoese fleet moved up and occupied the harbor, while Maximilian directed the land attack. The town was in evil case, supplies short, the garrison weak and demoralized, but aid was promptly sent from Florence, and on the 29th of October, a French squadron sailed in, favored by a stormy wind which prevented the Allied fleet from offering opposition. A fortnight later, while the Genoese were disputing the orders of the king, the Frenchmen sailed out again, leaving 500 soldiers and abundant stores. The weather, rainy and cold, discouraged and incapacitated the besiegers. Discipline was bad and money scarce. Maximilian therefore determined to raise the siege and discussed the chances of a direct attack on Florence. Soon that was also given up, and he left hurriedly for Lombardy, perhaps disturbed by rumors of an attack upon his line of retreat. By the beginning of December, he was at Pavia. Here he heard that Ferdinand of Aragon had concluded a truce with France. Alarmed, perhaps, for his own hereditary dominions and for the empire, certainly disgusted with all he had seen and suffered in Italy, Maximilian hurried across the Alps, there to expend his desultory vigor in other plans, fruitless indeed and unpractical, but none more fantastic and fruitless than the enterprise of Pisa. If Louis of Orléans had had his own way, the expedition of 1494 would have been directed against Milan. A year later, he would have seized the welcome opportunity to punish Ludovico for his treachery. What the jealousy of Charles had perhaps prevented, Louis Twelfth found himself in a position to carry out. On his accession, he took the title of Duke of Milan in addition to that of King of Sicily, and a full year was spent in diplomatic and military preparations. The treaty with England was renewed. A treaty was concluded with the Catholic kings of Aragon and Castile, July 1498, in which no mention was made of the king of Naples. Though Louis could not secure the neutrality of Maximilian, he was able to win his son Philip, ruler of the Low Countries, by some concessions in Artois. With the Swiss, the French king contracted a league, March 1499, by which the cantons stipulated to supply the king with men at a fixed rate of pay and received in return an annual pension of 20,000 florins and a promise of pecuniary or other assistance in their own wars. The powers of Italy, except Milan and Naples, were individually approached, and Venice, already on bad terms with Milan over the question of Pisa, after long deliberations, accepted in February 1499 an agreement for the partition of Milan. Venice was to receive Cremona and the territories east of the Adda as her share, and promised a contribution of 100,000 ducats to the French expenses in the joint war. The Pope was seeking a rich marriage for his son Cesare, 
who had decided to lay down his dignity of cardinal. Repulsed in Naples, he turned the more willingly to France. Louis purchased his divorce from Jeanne of France and papal support in his war by the gift to Cesare of the hand of Charlotte d'Albret and of the duchy of the Valentinois. The marriage was celebrated in May 1499 at Blois. Florence, aggrieved though she was by the Venetian support of Pisa, dared not promise aid to Milan, and secretly professed her friendship for France. The powers of the northwestern frontier of Italy were all one for the invaders. Meanwhile, Ludovico had not been idle. At every court, his envoys met the ambassadors of France and fought an unequal diplomatic fight. Maximilian was friendly, but he was engaged during the crisis in unsuccessful warfare with the Swiss. He took Ludovico's money, but gave him no material aid. Naples, reduced to famine by the ravages of war, was benevolent but helpless. The smaller powers, Mantua, Ferrara, Bologna, jealous as they were of Venice, were yet more afraid. They gave willingly good words, but took no compromising step. The Marquis of Mantua, indeed, after much haggling, accepted a condotta from Ludovico, but was careful not to carry out its obligations. One ally Ludovico had, or at least professed to have, the enemy of Christendom the Turk, who did much harm to Venice during and after the War of Milan, and even raided Friuli and the March of Treviso. But Ludovico was not to gain by this. Thrown thus upon his own resources, he was in fact beaten before the war began. His frontier was long and not naturally defensible. He had to fear attacks from every side. The spring and summer of 1499 were spent in feverish attempts to organize defense. A large number of infantry was raised in the Milanese and distributed in the strong towns and on the frontiers. A few Swiss and Germans were hired. Efforts were made to collect mercenary horse with moderate success, but the most important contingent, that promised from Naples under Prospero Colonna, was detained at home. Much labor was spent on the frontier fortresses. Alessandria, in particular, was thought to have been made very strong. The brothers, San Severino, in whom the Duke had complete confidence, were put in the chief commands and returned favorable reports to their master. The Duke flattered himself that his state could hold out for a time even against the overwhelming odds. If time were allowed, the powers of Germany might be set in motion. Far more methodical and effective were the measures taken beyond the Alps. Louis had improved the administration of the finances, and there was money to spare. The companies of regular cavalry, ordonances, were recruited and in great part remodeled. Not less than 1,500 lances were at the king's disposal for the invasion, besides the forces employed in watching Burgundy and the other frontiers. Some 6,000 Swiss foot were enrolled. 
the total infantry reached the sum of 17,000. The artillery was finer, more numerous, and better equipped than that of Charles VIII. At length, about the 10th of August, this army was concentrated at Asti. The chief command was given to Gian Giacomo Trivulzio, a Milanese exile, who had left the service of the King of Naples for that of France. The Venetians were, at the same time, in readiness to advance on the eastern frontier. The French, after capturing the strong place of Annone, where they massacred the garrison, occupied Valenza, Tortona, and some places of less importance, and then, August 25, closed in upon Alessandria, which was held in strength by Galeazzo San Severino. Galeazzo could not rely on his troops, inferior as they were, and ill-paid. His communications were threatened. Faithful himself, he could not trust his own brothers. On the fourth day after the invading army had encamped before the town, Galeazzo and his principal officers took to flight, and the city at once fell to the French. This was practically the end of the war. On the 30th of August, there were some signs of disquiet in Milan. The duke's treasurer, Landriano, was killed in the street. On the 2nd of September, Ludovico quitted Milan with his treasure, still considerable, and made his way by Como and the Valtellina into Tyrol. The castle of Milan, entrusted by the duke to his most trusted friend, Bernardino da Corte, was sold by him to the French for the equivalent of some 150,000 ducats. No further opposition was made. The duchy was occupied by the French on the west of the Ada, by Venice to the east. Beyond the Po, Parma and Piacenza, with their dependent territory, submitted without resistance to the French. Louis now resolved to cross the Alps to take possession of his new acquisition. On the 6th of October, he made his solemn entry into Milan, accompanied by a brilliant following of cardinals, princes, and ambassadors. After spending about a month in regulating the affairs of his duchy, he returned to France, leaving Trivulzio in supreme command. With him was associated a senate consisting of the chancellor and seventeen councillors, partly French and partly Italian. Its functions were both administrative and judicial. The task of Trivulzio was difficult. He was himself the head of the Gulf Party, and secure of Gulf support, but he had to keep on good terms with the Ghibellines, many of whom had deserted the cause of Ludovico and accepted the new regime. The inhabitants of the duchy, impoverished by the exactions of Ludovico made for the war, hoped for some remission of taxation. But the expenses of the army of occupation were heavy. Trade and industry were interrupted, and it was found impossible materially to reduce the imposts. The French soldiers were quartered on the inhabitants, discipline was seriously relaxed, and there were many grave causes of complaint. The arrogance of Trivulzio gave general offense. His administrative incapacity was conspicuous. 
his personal greed was notorious. Supported by the knowledge that Ludovico was approaching, the nobles and people of Milan armed, and before the end of January 1500, Trivulzio's position was clearly untenable. On the 3rd of February, he retired with the French army from a city barricaded and in open revolt, leaving a sufficient garrison in the castle under St. Quentin. Meanwhile, Ludovico in the Tyrol had succeeded in procuring a truce between Maximilian and the Swiss, September 22. With the aid of Maximilian, more valuable in the Tyrol than elsewhere, and by the expenditure of a part of his hoard, he gradually collected a force. Fifteen hundred men-at-arms reached him from Burgundy. The mercenary Swiss accepted his pay. Finally, he beat up a motley army of some twenty thousand men. While Ludovico advanced from Bormio, Galeazzo came by Aosta through Savoy with a considerable body of Swiss. Ligne attempted to resist at Como, but his strength was insufficient. Trivulzio ordered him to retreat on Milan. Thence the French retired to Novara and Mortara, where they were joined February 13, by Eve d'Alegre with the lances and infantry that Louis had lent to Cesare for the conquest of Imola and Forlì. Other scattered forces having come in, the French could now hold their own until the arrival of reinforcements. On the 5th of February, Ludovico re-entered Milan, greeted by enthusiastic shouts of Moro! Moro! His partisans showed some zeal in subscribing to replenish his partly exhausted treasury, but the most extreme measures were needed to supply the necessary funds. Even the treasures of the churches were not spared. Such resources could suffice for a time, but before the end of March, they showed signs of failure. While vain efforts were made to reduce the castle of Milan, Ludovico advanced with his army by Pavia to Vigevano, which he captured with its castle, and thence, after some desultory warfare, he moved against Novara, March 5, where was Eve d'Alegre with a sufficient garrison, still further strengthened a day or two later. But the inhabitants were hostile, and provisions scarce, so that the French were obliged to accept a favorable capitulation, March 21. Here ended Ludovico's successes. On the 23rd of March, La Tremouille reached Mortara with 500 men-at-arms and good artillery. Trivulzio was by this time not only hated but distrusted by his companions, and a new and trusted leader was worth as much as the new troops. On the 3rd of April, a large body of Swiss joined the French under Antoine de Bessy. The French army was now, though perhaps not equal in numbers, superior in quality to that of Ludovico. In his army, discontent caused by want of pay, was general, and desertions were frequent. There were Swiss in both armies, and it was likely that they would refuse to fight against their countrymen. The French levy had official authority. The French chests were full. Thus, 
when the French army moved forward against the Milanese at Novara, almost the whole Duckel army abandoned him. Further resistance was impossible. Ludovico attempted to escape in disguise among the Swiss, but was detected and became a prisoner, April 10. His captivity was only terminated by his death. His brother, Ascanio, was captured by the Venetians and handed over later to the French. The sons of Ludovico were safe in Germany. The little son of Gian Galeazzo fell into the hands of France. For the reorganization of the duchy, the king sent his own right hand, the Cardinal of Rouen, Georges d'Ambois. Trivulzio was superseded in the civil government by Charles d'Ambois, Seigneur de Chaumont, the cardinal's nephew, and in the military command by Aubigny. End of section 13. Recording by Linda Johnson.